You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 189 is Claire Hamill, who's released 13 albums since 1971, crossing many genres, starting as part of the British folk scene, often compared to Joni Mitchell. And she got involved with progressive rock figures, open for bands like Jethro Tull and Procol Harum, sang some lead vocals on the Steve Howe album in 1979, and even recorded and toured in the early 80s with Wishbone Ash. And I should say she, in addition to her solo work, is the singer for a band called Fragile that started as a Yes tribute band and has now released a couple albums of original material. By the mid-80s, she had a breakthrough in the new age genre. You're right now hearing Leaf Fall from her 1986 album Voices. We're going to talk about Aphrodite Obscured from her 2022 album A Pocket Full of Love Songs. Then another pretty recent one, Love Has a Mind of Its Own, from her 2019 album, Over Dark Apples. Then all the way back to her first album, One House Left Standing, 1971, we'll talk about The River Song. And we'll conclude by listening to a track from her dance music recorded with Andrew Warren. The song is called The Last Shirt, from the album Summer, from 1998. For more information, please see clairehamill.co.uk. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. If you want to support the effort, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic, which will get you ad-free episodes and my notes that structurally break down the songs that I cover with lyrics and comments on the arrangements, etc. Here we go. So I will play a little bit of Leaf Fall from Voices 1986, just to orient folks. I know that is, I was going to say an atypical album for you, but they're sort of all atypical. I mean, I guess until the last few albums, or maybe you could group the first two albums together, but you know, it's a constantly evolving style. Can you say anything about, you know, where you're at? We're about to hear something from your most recent, A Pocket Full of Love Songs, where you're at right now as it fits into that journey. Well, I think the thing is right now is I like crafting songs. And I like crafting them in a way that is reminiscent of the songs that I grew up with in many ways. I like sentimental songs. I like two verses, middle eight, and another verse, just conclude it. It's very old-fashioned in many ways. But I've gone through various experimental things. I could easily do another Voices album, which would be experimental. I started one once to do with Walter. And I could return to that, and I would enjoy it as well. But the thing is that I get ideas, you know, little tunes pop into my head and I just want to follow them up and make something that is very approachable and easy to get, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, this new album, so we're about to hear Aphrodite Obscured. Is it the opening tune? I believe, yes, the opening tune yes, from the is. new album, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. which just struck me as the most immediately accessible modern pop song, sort of has a feel like The Cure. I don't know. I hear a little bit of that in the verse, at least. Any particular words to orient folks about that song before we hear it, and then we'll talk about it in more detail. Well, I think it's probably the most, as you said, accessible rock-sounding song on the album. I mean, I've got my mojo back. is very stonesy, and I wanted it like that. And then there's the bluesy, cute, funny one. Who cares? It feels so good. That's sort of bluesy, rocky. But this one, Aphrodite, is more contemporary rock. You're absolutely right. And I think it's a good opener. Just 
Can you say anything about this choice of ensemble? I assume these were all written just strummings, solo guitar, but this is a, you know, a tight band with the pretty straight ahead drum and bass. You know, it sounds like you've played live with these folks. Was this purely a studio creation or? Purely a studio creation. I mean, all credit has to go to my sound engineer producer, Kevin Jones, because 
he essentially started off as a drummer. And I think that's what gives the album such a great cohesion because he's a really talented drummer and he knows how to program drums really well. And when we were in the studio, he said that he'd worked with an American producer. They'd said that it really sounded live. And he said that was such a compliment that it's, you know, I made, I programmed my drums and they, they sounded so live. So yeah, no, Kevin did everything. And that's the way I wanted it to be because I don't really like recording much anymore. I look, I like the product. I like the end result. And I love bringing in people to add their um, expertise and their creativity to it. But, you know, I get a bit bored now with the process of it. Uh, three hours and I'm out of there. I, I don't want to be in the studio longer than three hours. And mainly that's to do the stuff that I do, which is the singing, the backing vocals. You know, I, d- I played a bit of recorder on this one, but I can't really play many other things. But my guitar playing isn't really good enough to keep on the album. Really? The, the straight ahead strumming and acoustic, they, they replaced? Yeah, no, it was replaced. Oh, okay. i tell you why, because I've got a very weird guitar style. And what I tend to do is I emphasize parts of the song and the verses and the words by changing the rhythm slightly, not, not the, not the beat, not the beat. When I, when I say the rhythm, I mean the emphasis, the down, the upstrokes. The beat will be solid. I mean, I can keep a good beat. No doubt about that. But I will illustrate part of the song. Whereas, you know, a proper rhythm guitarist goes ching, 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 uh-huh. ching, like a train, you know? But I don't do that. I'll go ching, ching, uh, ching, chow, ching, 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 uh, you know what I mean? I will make the guitar slightly different. And I think it's quite annoying for certain musicians. (laughs) Interesting. I mean, I would think that would be the soul of the performance is because you got to do that when you're playing solo to make it interesting for yourself and for the audience and make every verse a little different than every other verse. But you're saying that at least for this production that you wanted to sand those edges down (laughs) and just focus on, you know, the beauty of your voice, delivering those lyrics and, just fill it in, make it sound pretty. <laughs> I don't really care how many synths, how many guitars exactly. Just- exactly. That's <laughs> what I'm like. I know it sounds really terrible. But, you know, the thing was, finding Kevin was really important because we were on the same page musically. I liked everything that he did. And he's great fun to work with. Whenever I go around there, we, we just chat for at least half an hour and he'll tell me the stories and you know, and we chat about our past and and, that, and then we start work. And I just really love that. It's just a fun way to get into the session. And I'm not a purist anymore about stuff. I, I want him to get as much out of it as I do. And I think letting him do it and be creative within that, I think he's got a lot out of it as well. And And that's why we ended up with something we were both happy with, I think. Rather than me going in and, oh, I don't like that. Oh, correct that. And, you know, sort of being sort of weighty and on the whole thing. I'm not that person anymore. I'm grateful. Oh, you did that. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, how lo-. you know what I mean? I'm, I'm sort of positive and grateful, I think, about the contribution that people make now. I don't feel that I've got to have my own way about everything. Well, I guess let's focus on the song itself, what you actually sent off to be finished rather than the arrangement. The Cure song that I had in mind, this love song from the 80s, is a sad song. Obviously, this one is dripping with joy. I mean, any thought about how long was this sitting in the hopper before you 
completed it. What is your process of putting together something like this? Was this just a sit down for five minutes? There you go. Yes, it was. I mean, the whole album was written during the first year of lockdown and recorded during the second year of lockdown. So yes, the whole thing just came. And and I think it was because I wasn't distracted by anything else. I live on my own. Out came the wine. <laughs> she could on the on my song, This Woman is a Mess. I mean, that really is autobiographical in many ways, although I gave it a happy ending, you know, which is a fantasy ending really. But I explored, as I'd said on the on the little write-up inside the CD. I'm a songwriter fascinated by love. I'm a really mushy person. I'm very sentimental. I've got Irish background. The Irish are very sentimental. And I just let that come out in my songs and in my music. And I know that, that you know, the world is awash with love songs. There you go. There's a nice line for a song. I might try and write that one. But I can't help what bubbles up inside me and, and wants to come out, really. So the title... I mean, it sounds like it's almost a comment on the song. Like, what is obscured about this presentation? Clearly, you know, you're saying this was not a love song written autobiographically at the moment, which is a weird thing to do, at least in my experience, past a certain age. Like, I wrote relationship songs to the person I was dating when I was 19. My wife would find that just strange. (laughs) I don't know. I should do more of that kind of stuff now. It would be nice. Well, you see, you're married. That's the difference. I'm single and I'm single and looking for love. So I'm still inspired by it. I think when you're married and happy and settled, yes, there isn't the same hunger. There just isn't. When I wrote Voices, I was married, happy and settled. And so I went down a kind of route of pastoral music. And I think also on the album that followed that, which was Love in the Afternoon, It's a different mood when you're happy and settled and married and and your creativity takes a different form in that respect. But I was on my own, feeling lonely during lockdown, having a fantasy about somebody that I'd met that I rather liked. And I channeled all of that into music. The actual title, Aphrodite Obscured, I pinched it from my friend Charlotte Snook, who is a really talented artist. During one of the breaks in lockdown, I went to see her exhibition in a nearby town and there was a painting of hers called Aphrodite Obscured. I'd written the song, but it didn't really have a title. I suppose it might have been I Want All of You or something like that. When I saw the title of the painting, I asked her permission. I said, oh, Charlotte, can I I use that title for my song? And she, she said, yeah, of course you can. So any thought about the structure of the choruses, you know, the catchy part, I want all of you, you want all of me too. It's, it's sort of the second half of every verse. It's like the verse is very short and then you just hit him with a chorus. But then I, what I called the big chorus, <laughs> which is no, I went, oh, like, oh yes, yes, yes. just use the same thing rather than introduce a third theme or something. I mean, do you recall your decision making and like, no, we could just sort of milk this chorus to make it a super chorus. It's just the voice wanting to go somewhere else. I think the dynamic of when you're keeping your voice within a certain area musically, and then it just says, come on, let's get out of here. Let's go somewhere else with it. And because I've got the ability to go between those different areas of sound, I very much like experimenting I like to go high and get that dynamic in, you know, get a little bit of edge in there because I've got a good range. It's not fantastic, but it's good. And in actual fact, I often sound 
that I sing higher than I do. I'm not a soprano because I'm in a church choir at the moment and I am not a soprano. I can't get the notes that those girls do. They make me sing with the sopranos because there aren't enough of them. Uh, but I'm really an alto. But I have a range so I can sing from low to relative high. You know what I mean? And make it sound like I'm going quite high. Um, but I don't actually think that my voice sounds great when I'm singing too high. I think it sounds better when I'm singing more mellow, but it's good to have that dynamic to be able to make the song a bit more punchy. Sure. Saving it for the, the super note yeah. there rather than yeah. <laughs> yes. have a, I don't know. Do you feel the need on your albums to like, I'm bored of singing this range. I have to have a song that the whole thing is kind of pitched maybe higher than it should be just to sort of introduce a different character or given that you have that range, are you constantly playing with that? Or are you sort of like, no, this is what is a comfortable pitch now. And I'm going to start there pretty much every time because that's where you feel most comfortable. I think the song asks for it. If it's a lighthearted song like this duet, then it is more breezy. You can maybe pitch it a little bit higher. And certainly on this duet, I go right to the top of my range at the end. But on something that's slightly sad, then you want to sort of pitch it a bit lower and make it more mellow sounding. So I think it kind of depends on the song itself. But I like the idea that I am able to work within different chord structures to make the album move around a little bit. I don't want people to get bored with my with my music. So if I'm making an album, then I want to include lots of things that well, not necessarily lots of things, but in actual fact, this concept album is an album that I wrote during lockdown. And so I included pretty much everything that I wrote during lockdown. I wrote 17 songs during lockdown. So I cut them down because they weren't all good. And I don't know if anything that I dropped will ever be recorded, actually, because since then I've moved on. I've got little snatches of other little songs I'm I'm not working on at all, but when I get an idea, I just record it on my phone. And so I've got the, I've got the musical idea that, you know, I'll be sitting in here in the evening, you know, a glass of red wine. I'll just reach for my guitar. Little tune comes into my head. Out comes the phone, on the phone. And then when I get round to doing another album, then I will get all my ideas together and I'll go, mm, that's nice, that's tasty. Oh, you know, oh, no, that's boring. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, are you surprised? Are there some that you just, you forget that you came up with that idea at all and it's like you're discovering something by a different person? Absolutely. I mean, that happened uh, on the previous album. And there's a song called When a Cowboy Says Goodbye. And I had written that phrase 10 years previously. And I've just discovered it on a, I think it was on a cassette. So I never throw cassettes away. Because you're never quite sure what you're going to find. And I played it. Oh, so it had song ideas on it. And I played the cassette. Oh, oh, I like that. And so, yeah, 10 years after I first wrote that phrase, when a cowboy says goodbye, then I went, right, I'm going to finish that song. Well, I've wondered about that, even ones that get rejected. I mean, I have like a song that was supposed to be on an album and I just, I didn't feel like it was up to par, but I'd gotten it enough in my head that it still occasionally comes back and like, I'll think of a new part for it. Like, wait, actually 
this could actually be good if I, you know, have a new element in there and get rid of the thing that I thought made it too boring or whatever. Exactly. And then you're really glad that you kept it and that you didn't discard it completely. I mean, I don't know about you, but do you remember the days when you'd be in bed and you're falling asleep and you're writing something, something pops into your head, a tune, a phrase, and you're going, get up, get up, get out of bed, go and write it down. Go and record it. And you're just so cozy that you go, oh, no, I'll remember it. It's really, really good. I'm sure to remember it because it's so good. And then you wake up in the morning and, it, yeah, you know, it's completely gone. I have that more in, in the shower. Is it? You know, oh, is great, that when you get your ideas? It is a place and it's the least convenient place to actually <laughs> then have to stop and dry your hand so you could record on your phone and hope your phone is not <laughs> getting wet. Oh, there you are. You see, we all have our natural places where we get inspired. I mean, with me now, it's just my little sitting room and you've got to find your place. So with you, it's the shower. With me, it's my little sitting room. I'm looking at all my grandson's toys at the moment, but apparently having a space is where children are is a place of inspiration is quite good. Apparently, I don't know where I picked that up from, but these things go into your mind and stay there, don't they? I don't know about you, but like I listen to a lot of audiobooks, a lot of podcasts, a lot of other music. And so going on a walk at night or whatever used to be the main time for coming up with melodies and it still can be, but often that's just taken up. Like, in fact, I've listened to stuff as I'm falling asleep. So like that is that much less time that I could be coming up with great ideas <laughs> to stay. Are we terrible? We take, I don't know about you, but I take my phone to bed and I'm the same. I can't let go of the day. Just one more YouTube thing, please. <laughs> <laughs> let's get let's get the second song out there. So Love Has a Mind of Its Own is the opening track from the previous album that you were just mentioning, 2019's Over Dark Apples. This one sounds more like, I assume this is actually you playing the guitar on this one. I mean, this sounds like a solo performance that then was orchestrated and things were added to, but that it actually has the essence of your solo guitar and vo- voice. It does, okay. and I tell you exactly who plays the guitar. Oliver Day, um, he was my bandmate in Fragile, the prog rock band that I sort of am still in, but not because we don't gig anymore, but we have produced a couple of albums. And Oliver is incredible because he will absolutely reproduce what I have played. Okay. But he will, he will play it beautifully, whereas I will play it clumsily. But yeah, he's fascinating in that I will, you know, I'll send him the backing track, and he will reproduce exactly what I've played on him much, much better. So in many ways, yes, what you're hearing on A Love Has a Mind of Its Own is me playing, but it's not, it's Oliver, but he's just reproduced my style. He's an incredible guitarist, actually. You know, he plays exactly like Steve Howe. He plays everything, the clap and, oh, I don't know. He's just amazing. Do you have any orienting words about this song before we hear it? I wrote it as a poem in Ireland. I was in Ireland with my best friend, Rory Flynn, who was Alan White's girlfriend for a long time, and we all shared a flat together in London. So we were in Ireland, and we'd gone with enough to see this psychic woman that did readings where you put your feet in a bowl of stones. Okay. (laughs) Not familiar with that one. All right. And she went in first for her reading, and I was gazing out of the window and I just wrote this poem and so that became a love has a mind of its own 
And it's very much about people in middle age who are connecting and you're very sort of fearful because we're more polite <laughs> when we're young. We're just going in for the kill. We don't care. We just want to get our needs met. Ah, you know, we're full of hormones. But when we're older, we're a little bit more polite. But the whole idea is that you let your heart lead the way and you let that person come closer because your heart is leading and love has a mind of its own. You're not in control or you shouldn't try to control it too much. Give yourself over to it. That's really the theme of it.
that lift through the lashes We stumble yet smile through the tentative looks And we spend sweet hours and you give me flowers We smooth the shadows and put down our burdens And step through the heather that grows near my home And you come inside For love has a Well, let me start this time with the song itself rather than the arrangement. The arrangement is really interesting to me. I really like the arrangement, but it's more of a formal poem, as you said, than the previous one. I mean, you're sort of in a different mode that now I'm in expressive love song mode. And here I'm in. It's going to be a little loftier. I don't have to import a title from someone else's painting. You know, this already sounds fancy in 1971 a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, good. I think it's my favorite track on the album. I also like Swans very much. Mm -hmm. Swans has got my favorite line in it. We are like swans on the mirrored surface of an English pond. I love that line. So I love swans as well. But I was pleased with that last album. But Love as a Mind of Its Own is, you know, the beachiness of it. You know, we walk through the grasses. You can hear the seagulls sort of shrieking and that sort of windswept beach theme. It's not a hot, sunny samba song. You know, the slight breeze. You're walking alongside this person that you're starting to fall in love with, but you're both very coy, not wanting to say too much. Merely living in hope that someone will throw you a rope as opposed to thirsting or taking aggressive action or something. And then come the brushes that lift through the lashes. I like that idea about her painting her lashes with mascara before she's meeting him, you know, getting ready and... That's a strangely impersonal way of pushing it. Then come the brushes that live through their lashes as opposed to, and then she applies, it is as if nature itself, there come the brushes. I think depersonalizing it is good. Well, it's the out of control thing that you were mentioning. Yeah. Yeah. It gives people space also to kind of interpret their own scenes. Mm -hmm. I remember a person giving me a great compliment once and they were talking about voices and they said that when they listen to voices, it's the imagery that comes, you know, into their mind. It said they're flooded with images. And I just went, oh, that is so nice to hear. Thank you. That's almost what I want the songs and the music to do. I want people to see them as well as hear them, if you know what I mean. I think that's adding an extra dimension in the way that you know when you're reading a book you're seeing images when people see the film of the book they go oh well it clashes with the image I had I didn't have that image but I like the film but it's not what I was seeing so I think in many ways that's a good thing about music is that you know you can create your own scenes and images let's then return to the arrangement I would imagine, given how vivid you're being with the lyrics here and the way you're delivering them, you know, it's kind of a lower intimate delivery. It doesn't really take off. I guess it does at some point. 
you know, but less so than the last song where you have this more diva moment in it. But stuff like this, well, you said he's imitating your guitar style, but the choice of the lead, is it a flugelhorn or is it just a trumpet played low? It's a flugelhorn. Okay, yeah. all right. Did you at least choose that? Like, how how involved were you in this arrangement? Oh, yeah. Okay. No, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> when I give my songs over to Kevin, you know, I'll say, oh, I definitely want flugelhorn on this. I'll give him the ideas about the stuff that I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. And then I let him go and find stuff, you know. But actually, the flugelhorn was played by James McMillan, who I'd worked with previously. In fact, the whole recording was held up because he was the last overdub to do. And we wanted to get the album out. I said, oh, you know, has James been in touch? No. And I, oh, wow, what's gone wrong? And what had happened was James had taken his flugelhorn to his daughter's wedding and left it behind. And he said, well, I, I can't do the session because I'm not going up to wherever it was that, you know, his daughter was living and for another month or so. And we were going, oh, no, we've got to wait for a whole month before we can finish the album. So, um, yeah, James was the last bit to go on. And I was back in Ireland again when Kevin sent me the mix of Love Has a Mind of Its Own with the flugelhorn on it. And I just went, wow. He said, wait till you hear what, because James did it in his own studio and sent it over. And you left space for him in the first song in Aphrodite Was Cured. Like there could have been a guitar solo break or something to fill up with a lot of echoing stuff. But the vocals don't stop and leave big spaces like that. It just sort of goes on to the next thing such that he had to just use that layering over you. You know, there was enough room still for him to add the steel guitar or whatever that was answering your individual lines, you know, because it had a slow enough delivery to it. But this one, he really gets to actually solo in here a bit. So you're saying the entire string part, were these real strings? Were these synth strings or? Who can afford real strings, Mark? (laughs) They're just really nice samples. There are some parts that I could tell, but. In my first two albums, I did have real strings and you can really hear the difference. But then again, it's another beautiful sound, isn't it? Uh, I love the sound of strings. I definitely do. And I tend to work with them on each of my albums. I think they're very themic and they give a texture and a color and send you somewhere. I suppose that's the influence of all the Hollywood movies that I listened to as a child and, you know, Streisand, Sinatra, all those great people and all those fantastic arrangements that were created for them that certainly been an an influence on me so I like always to include strings it it might make make it seem a bit schmaltzy but I don't care you know I get to do my albums the way I I want them my eldest daughter certainly she's always criticized oh mom why do you have to why can't you she wants me to make an album that's very sort of bare in many ways so you just got acoustic guitar and maybe a little bit of percussion and maybe an, an acoustic guitar solo, a soloist, and very, very simple folky. She wants it to be quite folky because she thinks that that's the current sound that is popular. I agree with her. I think she's right. I think it is certainly for a lot of younger people, uh, younger artists, they prefer to have that sound. But I just can't live with myself. I, I just, I, you know, I hear strings and I, I just want them, you know. And so I, I have them and take the album in a different area, really, I suppose. You know, it is quite romantic stuff. And you've kind of got to be 
in the mood for it, I suppose. So it's always been either you just playing completely solo or with a whole band, nothing in between. You've never gone through like a little acoustic unit period where it's just you and a lead guitarist and a bongo player and a bassist or something like that. Like, has that been one of your no, lives? Really? I've had just an accompanist guitarist with me before. I did a gig with Oliver Day in London earlier in the year when we supported Focus, which was fantastic. They were amazing. I have had bands, you know, bass, drums, guitar, keyboards, and I've played acoustic guitar. The only time I ever sang with live strings was at a performance in Poland in 1985 when the wall was still up. Let's stop just for a moment for me to tell you about another podcast. Check out the Super Awesome Mix podcast. Each week, Matt and Samer go on a musical adventure where they or a guest pick just 12 songs on a specific mixtape theme. It's challenging, fun, and you hear some amazing stories along the way. That's the Super Awesome Mix podcast available wherever you find podcasts. I was watching today your solo concert from 2020 that you did during the pandemic. You know, I guess if your daughter wants some acoustic stuff, just pretty much do that. Just record and then you can recycle stuff from 1973 to the present. And, you know, it'll give those different arrangements. Uh, in particular, maybe we'll to end this. We hadn't really decided what song we're going to end this whole interview with, but I think we should maybe the last shirt, the original version, the 1998 version. But the reason that I, I thought of that was because I saw this solo acoustic version and how vastly different it is than, you know, the six and a half minute discoized version you did in 1998 there. What a great choice. Thank you, darling. What a great choice. I love that song. All right. Before we get to that, let's look back. I'm forcing you to go back to uh, your first album here, 1971's One House Left Standing with The River Song, which is one of the ones that has the full strings, has the full on arrangement, a lot of money packed into this. Yeah, well, I was born near that river that I sing about, the River Tees. I was born in a, my grandma's back bedroom in a little hamlet. Well, not yards from the river, but, you know, maybe 200 yards from the river as the crow flies. Um, Mike wrote the most beautiful lyrics, and I still sing that song. I love it. He was so instrumental to me becoming a, a professional singer because if I hadn't have met him, and he hadn't have given me those beautiful words. I don't think I would have got a recorded contract when I did, and I possibly would have gone on to go to drama school because that's where I was heading, and I might have ended up being a drama teacher or something like that, you know, maybe a bit of acting work, I don't know. Um, I'm a bit short, so I don't know how much acting work I would have got. <laughs> but as it was, he gave me the poetry, I turned them into songs, they helped get me a recording contract. And here I am 50 years later, still writing songs. So I'm ever so grateful to Michael, definitely. He's a fantastic artist, you know. Yeah, look up his work, Mike Coles. It's really bizarre, actually. It's really profound. You can see that he's kind of got a little bit of thing about the Catholic Church. We were both Catholics. And, you know, I've gone back to the church now. And... Um, I'm really enjoying being a God-botherer again, as my friend John calls me. I think also that's a direction I'm being drawn to in as much as making sacred music is something I've never done. Although I have done various political songs as well, which I've never, I mean, I've written some quite hard songs that I've never recorded 
and possibly they won't see the light of day because, you know, everybody likes to have an image of me, I think, as being quite sweet, really, and I don't want to disturb that image. Hard songs as in politically acerbic. Yeah, and a little bit of swearing, you know, which I don't really do. I'm too much of a lady. A, a swearing grandma is very hip right now. <laughs> yeah. you, you can definitely do that. Oh! 
All right, so aggressive fluting does date it a little bit. I think if you were doing an orchestral arrangement right now, it probably would not be quite so flute heavy. But yeah, it's just really, I love it. I love listening to it. There there are some songs on that first album. I don't like Smiley Blues Away, way too winsome and silly. Uh, but there are some nice songs on on that album. And, and I'm so stylized. Yeah, I was wanting to ask you about that. I mean, was that the Joni Mitchell influence or what was it that do you think that gave you that particular, I guess, a little more Irish or I don't know what? what... I've got no idea. <laughs> I've got no idea. I, I think, you know, when I listen to myself, I go, wow, I was really sort of into myself and, you know, very... I don't know. It was very dramatic in many ways, Mm -hmm. you know, for a young woman. I don't know where it came from. Well, I suppose it was because I wanted to be an actor. And so I was injecting drama into my vocals. Perhaps that really helped to set me apart in some ways. I've never really been a very American sounding singer, but there are some sort of American sounds coming through. I've wanted to work on my voice to make it as beautiful as I possibly could with what I'm given to make it sound smooth, really. I didn't want to be squeaky. I've always wanted to sound like Ella Fitzgerald. She's my favorite. She's like, oh, like chocolate. Oh. So was it more the jazz and Joni Mitchell kind of jazz folk then? Like, were you even aware of the Fairport Convention and Steel Ice Band, or was that all? I never really liked the Steel Ice Band, Maddie Fryer sound. No, that was not for me. It was very much going towards a more smoother, jazzy, folky. Yes, definitely. And I love singing jazz songs. In many ways, you know, Eva Cassidy is probably the epitome of the kind of singer that I am closest to in direction in as much as Eva wanted to sing blues, she wanted to sing jazz, she wanted to sing folk. And that's exactly what I've always wanted to do. I've never really wanted to pigeonhole myself in any one genre because I don't know, I just wanted to play around with the music, I think, and have some fun with it. Because I like all those styles as well. And so I wanted to express myself within those styles of music. But of course, I'm not really a a rock singer. I tried desperately to be a rock singer when I joined Wishbone Ash, but I just don't have the power. And I I lost my voice when I joined Wishbone Ash. Well, and actually, I lost my voice on tour in America when I very first put a band together. And we did three weeks rehearsal before we went on tour. And every day I'm in there with the band, giving it, you know, trying to prove I was amazing, giving everything. And somebody should have tapped me on the shoulder and said, Claire, this is a rehearsal. You're not having to prove something because I hadn't worked with musicians before. I really wanted to prove myself to them. So uh, consequently, two weeks into the tour, I've got no voice left and we had to count. Did you have a vocal coach anywhere in there to, you know, be telling you not only how to increase your range, but how to not lose your voice? Well, what actually happened was we came back to L.A. and they sent me to a vocal coach and he said, you've got to get a humidifier and you must have it by your bed every night. You must have it around you at all times. You must breathe and you must keep your voice and your throat moist at all times. Uh, You must stop smoking. But I was smoking a bit of weed at the time, I must admit. I'd never really smoked cigarettes, but Mm -hmm. you must stop smoking. You mustn't drink. You mustn't shout. He says all those things will damage your vocal cords. But 
you know, I had no voice left and the tour had to be cancelled. We did rebook a lot of gigs, but it then became expensive for the record label because I was, you know, living in LA on two weeks rest, vocal rest. You know, I could hear damage in people's voices then. I got very funny about not using my voice at all, not speaking, resting. And as you know, that's what professional singers do now. You know, after a performance, they'll just go back to the hotel, don't want any interviews, don't want to speak to anybody because they have to rest their voice because they've got a gig the next day. And it's all money, you know, that's the thing. People are investing a great deal of money in these shows, so... You can't take chances. It's really boring. After a show, you just want to get drunk and talk to people and, you know, have some fun because you're on a high. And to the, the idea that you've got to go back to the hotel room and just put your head down over a humidifier, that's not rock and roll, is it? So even if Joni Mitchell and Leonard Cohen were early influences, you did not follow them in the ways of vocal deterioration such that you're your age and you can still sing in a nice, beautiful, soaring way, and it's not just all ground down to, well, I'm a really good lyricist. That's enough, right? <laughs> yeah, that was never going to be good enough for me. <laughs> I love to sing, and if I can't get my notes and I can't sing them properly, I get really down about it. I think it's a disappointment to hear Joni's vocal range collapse down like that. But she is Joni and we will always treasure her and give her the greatest esteem because she deserves it. She's a wonderful poet and she's left us a great legacy of music. She, you know, a disappointment isn't the right word, really. We're just grateful that we've had so much wonderful music mm -hmm. from her. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you, Joni. I, I wrote a song called Just Like Joni Mitchell. I do write comedy songs from time to time. And I do have a song called Just Like Joni Mitchell, which I should record just to put up on YouTube because it's funny. And that's um, the one with all the swearing that's really acerbic. Thing. Ah, no, no, <laughs> I'm just... no swearing in that one. And there's another one, actually, that I've, I've written called Like Streisand. So I've obviously got a theme coming on here. And the Like Streisand one, I do gig at that one. And it is quite funny. It's about going to sleep. And dreaming that you, in your dream, you sing just like Streisand. And you wake up and then you learn to play the guitar. You learn all her songs. And uh, it's quite a cute song. I'll record that one day as well, just to put up on YouTube. I mean, the, th the thing is that I'm going to start doing live performances locally. Just I've got some three songs that I recorded in a car park <laughs> just <laughs> about three weeks ago. I haven't uploaded them yet. It's just me on the stairs with a guitar. And I turned up in his car park with my nephew filming me. We had the guitar and we walked into the stairwell because I wanted it to be nice and re a bit of reverb. Mm -hmm. And there were a bunch of lads in there. There's, um, you know, there's about six 16-year-old boys. And we immediately we went, oh, what's going on? You know, as if we stumbled into something nefarious. And actually, they were just lads sheltering from the rain because they didn't know where else to, just hanging out, basically. And they went, oh, sorry, we're just hanging out. We're not, not doing anything. And then they, they spotted the guitar and they said, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm just going to sing a couple of songs, if that's okay. And they said, oh, can we watch? And I went, well, if you're very good and quiet, you can watch. <laughs> and it was so cute. Because, I, you know, I'd finished the song and then these boys would clap. Oh, it was really sweet. 
So I'm going to I'm going to upload that. So I might do a version of just like Streisand and put that up live. You're demonstrating though that you know this is very direct. You're saying I don't want the arrangements to get in between me and the audience. So that's the immediacy of you and your guitar. I want to use that to just pivot for one minute back to the river song that we've already talked about two songs where you recorded it, you conceived it in this, you just a solo thing, but then you sent it out basically to be produced. And here's my ideas, but I'm not going to be too uptight about how you do it. I know you do a wonderful job. We're now going back in time to 1971 where you didn't even have that option. There was a producer. They were going to arrange the strings. I mean, there's weird things in this arrangement, like the fact that at the end of the instrumental theme, the flute theme, the song just kind of stops. Like it's, it's as if the song is done. Oh, but now you're still singing. And it does that at least twice or three times in the song. Like, was that the kind of thing that you were responsible for? That was in the structure of what you wrote? Or was that the arranger imposing their vision? I actually do play piano on that song. Okay. All right. So this was yeah. at least. So it was the way I constructed it. Yes. With the, with the stops. Yes. And then, of course, I handed it over to the producers. Yeah, I had no say in how any of the album was produced, really, because I just didn't know what I was doing. I'd written the uh-huh. song. I was just a schoolgirl going into a studio and listening to my voice for the first time. It was just incredible. I was the eldest of seven children who, I mean, my dad had left and gone to live in Canada. We were really poor. My mother went out to work to keep us. Yeah, I mean, I was just thrust into the limelight. It was quite an incredible story, really, to be on national TV and flying down to London in a plane, you know, and then going to North America in the days when, you know, flying to America was really expensive. Phoning America was really expensive because I met an American when I was over there during my first tour. I fell madly in love with him and even phoning him was like so expensive. I could have been an American. How about that? An American wife. You're young and inexperienced and squeezed a little bit out of the creative process, but it sounds like over the next couple albums, like you sort of really exerted yourself and were producing yourself by album three, four. Is that right? Something like that. By album four. I mean, I was a cocky little madam, you know. I really thought something of myself by the time the fourth album came along. Little did I know punk was around the corner and I would be out, I would be destroyed. I would be dead in the water when punk came along. But at the time, I really thought something of myself. And so, you know, I'd had, I think by then, two American tours under my belt. And I came back into the studio. I want to produce the next album. You know, I don't need a producer. I know what I'm doing. Yeah, I want to produce. So um, punk, Ray Davies let me produce it gave me a budget and I did need help. There's no doubt about it. Phil McDonald was the, was the sound engineer producer alongside myself. There was one track called Rory, which I'd written about my friend Rory. I brought the guitar in halfway through the song, the electric guitar. And uh, the sound engineer said, Claire, you can't do that. You've got to introduce it at the beginning of the song. You can't just bring a solo in. And I went, no, I want to do it like that. The solo starts there in the middle eight. We want the solo there. He said, no, you. there's no other way. You've got to introduce the electric guitar earlier. And I, and I went, no. And you know what? He was so right. It sounds so weird <laughs> because there's no indication that you're going to get an electric guitar. And then all of a sudden, there it is. So I like when I like when sonic visitors come in in some part of the song and then get out of there. I, I I don't know. It's nice to set have the players set up 
at the beginning of the song and then you know you know it's like the characters in your but it's also nice at least if it's supposed to be a little daft to to have no definitely not oh funny days i mean we recorded it we uh, england uh, i mean great britain were going through a terrible time we were on the three-day week we had no electricity we had three days of, of electricity and everything went off at 10 o'clock in the evening. Then I had to record an album. It was, it was insane. We are faced with it at the moment, of course, because of energy prices and everything. But in those days, it was, it was just literally people were on strike. Unfortunately, we got back down there now with inflation. We've got strike. Anyway, I'm not going to talk about strike. All right. Well, as, as tempting as it is to go sort of year by year, we're, we're reaching the end of our time here. So we'll jump. That's mid seventies we were talking, and then we already touched on the eighty stuff where you were, you know, every note on the eighty six album is you, <laughs> you know, no other musicians involved. So our last stop is we mentioned the last shirt, which is the final song off of nineteen ninety eight's summer songs credited to you and Andrew Warren. Was he the synth guy, and he kind of got you to do this dance style, or were you? Still at this point, doing a lot of keyboards yourself, or like how much of this pretty sprawling arrangement is this? Is it was Andrew's arrangement, definitely. He was looking for a singer. He met my brother. Um, he was DJing in a local club. My brother was DJing in a local club. And my brother said, Look, I've met this guy and he's looking for a singer. He heard your voices album and he wants to meet you. And I said, well, well, who's he? He said, oh, he does dance music. I went, I am not interested. I know nothing about dance music. I, said, I remember saying to my brother, what, you mean boom, boom, boom? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> Which is surprising to me after, you know, the 1974 album that we we're just talking about is a little disco. There's a little, <laughs> it's not, but, yeah, but it's no, nothing like honestly, this. <laughs> yes, it's true. It's true. Um, I wasn't interested at all in, in making dance music, but I met Andrew. And then he kind of wheedled his way into my heart slightly. Well, he did, definitely. And he introduced me to dance music in the way that I'd worked earlier with Rick Gretsch. And, he, and Rick had introduced country music to me. He wanted me and him to be Emmy Lou Harris. and um, for, for album three. So that's why album three sounds so damn different than album two. Is that, am I it was around that, that right? Time. Okay. Yeah, no, I think actually... It must have been after Abracadabra. But in the same way that I get seduced by somebody and end up doing what they want me to do. You know, I am a woman. You know, I do have feelings. And so I ended up getting into dance music with Andrew. I think that the album, the summer album, has got some really good songs on it. Yeah, The Last Shirt, love that. One Day Left, that's another great song. Well, and I was thought about the song Stupid putting in this as because that's a nice single. But I think ultimately I needed to get the sprawling character of this out. And the fact that it seemed like a, a song you you had a little more affection for this. The last shirt than some of the others. Oh, well, definitely. I'd fallen quite hard for Andrew. My, my marriage had ended and I'd moved into the local town out, away from my house in the country. Took my kids, of course, um, but I shared them with their dad. And the thing is, when you come out of a marriage, you're still very much in marital mode, i.e. there's me and there's you. I've been single a long time now, so it's very different atmosphere to my life. But in those days, it's very much about, oh, there's something missing, there's something missing. So 
when I met Andrew, I think I was very vulnerable. I was in a place where I, I needed to fill up a great big hole in my heart. And he stepped into that role. And we ended up making music together. And the last shirt was at a point where I thought he was going to go back to his ex-girlfriend to kiss your shirt and know it is the last kiss. I see my life fly past. This is my private hell. So this was not even just a musical partnership with him. This was actually written to the guy that you were doing the album with. Oh, yeah. At the time. All right. Well, that's... Maximize the drama in the project. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think a lot of my life is written in my songs. I find real life to be the most inspiring thing of all. I'm not alone in that. I think most people do write their lives in their music and their books. And I was criticized for that when I was young. One of my managers, John McCoy, did once say to me, Clay, your songs are too personal. Clay, your songs are too personal. That's why you're not having a hit. So you're going to have to do something about that. It's the way I write, isn't it? You know, they come out of me. They, I plonk them down. There you go. Have a life or not. Be something or not. Fly or not. But I do like The Last Shirt. That is my favourite one on that album. No doubt about it. It means a great deal. I can see myself now at the kitchen sink, peeling potatoes. <laughs> and Andrew was over there in the corner and I didn't know whether he was going to stay or going to leave and I remember that feeling and I remember the last shirt about thinking that it was all over but he didn't leave um and you finished the album so so we we finished the album Well, thank you so much for for doing this. It's been a pleasure being a tourist through your life and its many phases. You know, there are so many other things we could have touched on here. You've you brought up some of the connection to the Prague community, which I'll point in the uh, liner notes to this, to the thing that you did with Steve Howe and, you know, other other stuff like that. But we got a a good sampling here and uh, leaving on a, a pretty fun song, The Last Shirt. Oh, Mark, thank you so much. It's been a great interview. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.
Thanks so much to Claire. I do think that last song, The Last Shirt, is more effective. Claire's daughter is probably right as an acoustic guitar and vocal thing. So I will provide links to that YouTube concert as well as other things that Claire has done with Steve Howe, with Wishbone Ash, with her recent band Fragile, from the blog post associated with this episode at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. To go right to the source, see clairehamill.co.uk. All right, this was the last interview I recorded in 2022. I have since now recorded one with Jad Fair from the band Half Japanese that took me a lot of prep. Jad has a huge, huge, lengthy career. And I am about to record one with two of the guys from the band Eyelids, which is a great-sounding dual singer-songwriter, veteran Portland musicians. R.E.M.'s Peter Buck is their producer, so that should tell you something about the quality of the material. Make sure you are subscribed to the Nakedly Examined Music podcast via nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or wherever you look up podcasts, or hear the ad-free feed at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic, or if you already use Apple Podcasts and want to support the show and get access to the ad-free feeds for actually three of my podcasts, just click the subscribe button to activate a paid Apple subscription on Apple Podcasts. I hope you're doing well. The winter kind of has me down. I have maybe recorded a few ideas on my phone with lyrics and things, but I've done no serious music recording or getting together with my band or anything like that. Sometimes you just got to hibernate, wait out the stinking cold, but it's great to at least be listening to a lot of good music and prepping for talking to these wonderful people. However you do it, Keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. <laughs>